Gross, the LAProbateExpert.com, and this is a Thursday afternoon probate weekly call. We do it every Thursday, 4 p.m. Uh, Center Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's very important that I tell you the Eastern Time slot because today we're actually broadcasting live from Turnberry Island in Florida, just north of Miami Beach. I'm here for Grant Cardone's 10X Real Estate Conference, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday and over the weekend, he has his business conference. We have a special guest. Before I get to that, I just want to show you guys a couple things I want to tell you. If you put any comments in the chat box in social media, they'll appear here. And we do want this to be interactive. You know, the difference between the way I want to run this program and my vision is this isn't me as a talking head telling you what to do, but it's interactive. If you have problems, we're here to help. If you're going to share victories, we're here to read one. If you have questions on your plan, we want to participate. So feel free to put your questions if you're on the Zoom in the chat box. But if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook, which we stream to live as well, feel free to put your, your comments there, and they should pop up uh, here. And if it's a good one, we'll actually put you on, on the screen. But that said, before we jump into our, our topic today, we have a chance to ask some questions. I want to share with you, I'm here at Turnberry Island, the JW Marriott, amazing resort. I'm going to give you a quick little video tour, not tour, but it's a view of what I'm looking at. Can you guys see that? There's looking into the sun, so that's probably kind of not so good. There's a water park. So the best view is the other way. I'm on the uh, uh, west-facing side. There's the golf course. There's another building, this resort. Uh, and on the other side, we're right on the ocean or the intercoastal waterway. And just a fantastic venue for Grant's program, which I'm really excited about participating in. But speaking of excited, um, I'm really excited to speak to have today a special guest that I've not met. I've seen him on webinars. I've, you know, pre-COVID, uh, it was the kind of event that I would sign up for or want to go to, but it was in Pasadena tough to get to. And uh, fortunately, they do a lot of webinars. I reached out to them, and I'm a customer of the firm. I reached out to the marketing department and said, hey, I'd love to have Tony uh, jump onto our call and share questions that relate to taxes uh, for investors, wholesalers, and real estate professionals, real estate agents. And so, Really excited to have from Robert Hall and Associates uh, organization, which is a, a regional uh, CPA firm. Uh, I don't know your exact title, Tony, but Tony Watson. So Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thanks, Bill, for having me. Really appreciate being here. Hello, everyone. So for starters, what is your official title at, at uh, Robert Hall and Associates besides the personality and the good-looking face on the screen? Sure. I, you know, a, a lot of people kind of throw accountants into one bucket, but uh, there are actually several different designations uh, for, for, uh, for accountants across the U.S. And I hold a federal license called an enrolled agent's license that allows me to not only represent clients in front of the IRS, but also to file taxes in all 50 states. So uh, a little bit different than a CPA, but uh, nonetheless, more, more specifically working within the tax field. Uh, so when you want a, a tax professional, normally you go to an enrolled agent and not directly to a CPA. Uh, so that, that's really the main difference. We are very income tax specific professionals. Well, and the fact you bring it up is, is really why I, I want you on here today. You know, I know a lot of uh, accountants. In fact, my son-in-law, who I love dearly, is a CPA, uh, but he's uh, international tax. Well, I'm sure he could do my taxes, sure. but he's not a specialist in really looking at the types of business that I am and doesn't have experience of seeing the kinds of businesses maybe that I want to be as I grow my business. And I know Robert Hall and Associates sits. So tell me a little bit, kind of before we get into you, kind of a macro sense where your firm kind of sits in the marketplace of the accounting business. Sure. Uh, our firm's been around since 1971. Uh, right now, I think we just topped about 16,500 roughly tax filings per year. Uh, one family owned and run location in uh, Southern California. I myself have been with the firm for about 17 years now, uh, servicing about 1,200 tax filings per year. Uh, we have 15 senior accountants, 13 junior accountants, uh, and then the rest of our staff is made up of, of our wonderful admin staff. So we're about 45, between 45 and 50 strong right now at the, at the office. Uh, and we do have clients and service tax filings in all 50 states. And I know you guys do a lot of marketing and education in the real estate space. Is that one area you specialize in? Is that the area? Is it one of several? Kind of, what's your uh, topic or industry uh, focus? Sure. As enrolled agents, we can do pretty much anything income tax related. But over the past, gosh, I'd say, I mean, 10, 12, 13 years uh, that I've been doing webinars and uh, pre-pandemic in-person seminars, 
I, I myself have really developed a, a strong, uh, strong, you know, kind of uh, a client base of real estate professionals, anywhere from uh, the individuals who own 15, 20 plus rental properties. I have some clients who have syndications, 70, 80, 90 properties, uh, 1031 exchanges, uh, rehabbers, wholesalers, uh, you kind of name it, we, we file it. So as a firm, we, we do specifically work with small business and real estate professionals uh, across all industries. And that's really what prompted me to bring you here today because uh, people are called today are going to be investors, wholesalers, real estate professionals. And, and you guys don't just happen to do tax returns and can't do them. That's an area that I've seen you guys really focus in and provide education to the industry, which I really appreciate. Um, right. uh, tell me, uh, give me an idea if you can. And I, I don't know if you can answer specifically. I know it varies. But as a general rule, when, when should somebody think about going from I'm just a Schedule C guy to uh, incorporating. I understand the liability. And it seems to me there's like a whole industry pushing people to get LLCs before they even buy a property, which seems to me to be crazy. Mm -hmm. But in terms of using a, a corporation for tax purposes to lower my tax bill, when should I be looking at doing that? What, when does that make sense? Sure. There's, this is a whole Power of Inc. webinar that I give. It's usually an hour to an hour and a half long. And and kind of generates a lot of questions at the tail end. But uh, the first thing that I always talk to my clients about through our, what I call our interview process, because we like to interview our clients uh, to see if incorporating is right for them. Uh, the first thing that I ask them is, well, where are you at in your business? Are you brand new to the industry? Are you a veteran? Have you, have you acquired your first couple properties so far? Where are you at timing wise? Because timing is everything with incorporating. You're absolutely right. There are just so many educational platforms out there that really push people to start entities way too early in their investment uh, career. And so if you have never purchased a property before and you have this wonderful limited liability company set up ready to take title to the property, but you know years pass and you haven't really pulled the trigger on your first property, the LLC doesn't protect anything because uh, naturally if the LLC doesn't own anything, it's not protecting anything. So exactly. there's very much a right and a wrong time to incorporate. And, and you know, if you, if you are entering into escrow and uh, you know, you brought the money to the table and, and the loan is going to fund you, you you're hundred percent sure of that. Uh, you know, setting up an LLC is pretty quick. It's pretty easy. Um, the expedited filing here in California can take seven to 10 business days. So normally if you wanted to pull the trigger and acquire a title under an LLC, you could do that. Uh, you just need about seven to 10 days to get the articles filed and the EIN number and LLC state ID number and whatnot. But, you know, a lot in most cases, it's not going to be putting the entity, uh, you know, or what, what is that saying? Putting the something before the, the racehorse. I forget what that's saying. The, the, uh, the cart before the horse. There you go. There you go. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to pull the gun on that because then it's just a cost to you and it's overhead and, and it just really, really doesn't make sense at that point. So, you know, I, I think uh, I talk to brand new investors a lot. I might have called Tuesdays and this one, people want to get into it. And I understand it's scary to get started. The hardest deal is your first deal. I heard Grant Cardone say that live last week as well. So it's a common challenge. But I see new people say, well, I have to get my LLC. It's like they put an obstacle in front of the obstacle in front of the obstacle at some point. And I, I appreciate you saying that. I tell people, wait till you're in escrow and clear contingencies. It takes, like you said, seven to 10 days your firm literally did one for me in like seven to 10 days. I popped up in my email and, and everything was done. So uh, no lie about that at all. I, I think the other reason what prompted me to reach out to uh, on your team, Mike, is actually the contact that I work with. I think what prompted me to, uh, to uh, reach out, and I'd love to, if, I don't know what you're comfortable sharing, but to the extent you are, and maybe I'll just show a little bit. You know, I'd heard about the corporations and I just assumed it was a cost of a lot of money. And I assumed I had to have a much higher income for it to make sense. And when I realized it didn't, and then when I did an intake with the, with the accountant that handled my personal case, and she went through the fees, I was surprised at how affordable it was. Like I assumed it would be three to five times that, and I had to decide if I want to go forward. When she went through the fees, I said, fine, I'll give you a credit card, let's do this. Do you, do you see that from time to time? Is that just me that has that reaction that, maybe we believe it's more cumbersome and more expensive than it really is? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the industry average of cost of incorporating can vary from the, the cheapest version on LegalZoom and these online, you know, uh, uh, kind of self-service platforms from, you know, three, four hundred bucks uh, to all the way up to incorporating with an actual attorney, which could cost you five, six, seven plus grand, depending on what kind of service you're paying for. 
Uh, it doesn't need to cost all of that money though. You know, our firm, uh, we charge a base rate of $895. And the reason why we're a little bit more of a premium service than the legal zoom side of things at 400 bucks or 450 bucks or whatever they charge is because we handhold our clients through the process of the incorporation itself. Um, and also I've run into issues with, you know, these online portals where you think you've got all the documents, you think you filed all of the correct statements or checked all the boxes and they send you all the paperwork, it looks formal, but then the 2553S election is missing or the LLC statement of information form is missing. And, you know, if you don't file those things right out the gate and, and, and make the necessary, you know, check your T, your cross your T's, dot your I's, the penalties on the corporate side are much greater than the individual side. So not paying a $25 California Secretary of State fee could end up you paying, you know, could end with you paying a $250 penalty. It's it's okay. that much of a difference. So you want it done right the first time. And especially if it's your first entity, you, you want the hand holding process. And so that that 895 kind of wraps into, you know, to, to that hand holding process as well. And I experienced that because the same woman uh, in this case who was helping me you know, talk about some tax issues I had and how, what I had to do is the same person took the intake and formed the corporation. And I will say it took less work and effort to get the LLC, not LLC, I'm sorry, in my case it was a chapter S court. It took me less effort and time to get the S court filed with the state and EIN than it took Wells Fargo to open up a chicken account. And I was already a business client of Wells Fargo's. Yep. So <laughs> I don't know if I should compare you to Wells Fargo. That might not be a very pleasant uh, comparison, but you guys, <laughs> But it is very comforting to have the same person handle several aspects of those financial issues. So I should, should appreciate that. Um, now, I've, I have a, a list of questions that I've, I've prepared and got from other people ahead of time. But again, those of you watching, if you want to put one in the Zoom chat box or if you're watching live on YouTube or Facebook, if you want to put a, chat, uh, a, a note there, we'll try to get it online as well and, and call you out. So one question I also had was, uh, should I get an LLC for rental property and for each, if I'm flipping properties for each individual property? Sure, that's, that's always a, a pretty common question, especially with my, my rehab and flipper clients. Um, you know, LLCs are, are, first of all, LLCs are not corporations so that everybody understands what a limited liability company is. One of the major differences just on the filing standpoint uh, or fi filing, initial filing of the LLC is that you file articles of organization in whatever state you're incorporating in. You do not file articles of incorporation. Uh, and so when you file as an LLC, you are a company. And so that means that you don't issue shares out of the LLC or anything. You actually own a percent of the business. And if you're a sole owner, you own 100% of the LLC. Uh, but the main goal of an LLC is to limit liability. In fact, an LLC, unless it elects to be taxed, as a different type of entity, the election is made with the IRS to tax it as a different type of entity. Unless it makes that election, LLCs provide absolutely no tax sheltering benefits whatsoever. They do exactly what their name entails. They limit liability. Uh, to get an additional tax benefit, you may opt to elect to be taxed as an S corp or maybe even a C corporation, but that should be per the advice of your tax advisor. Uh, one question that I get a lot is, should I have an LLC for each property flip? Should I have an LLC for each rental investment? And, you know, from, from a legal standpoint, that question, I mean, I could, I could answer it in probably great detail, uh, but you probably want to go to an attorney first and get the true legal reason why you individually would want an LLC for each property. But I'll give you a little scenario here, just, just to kind of answer that question, but not really step over the line and start giving legal advice when I'm not an attorney. Um, LLCs, once again, they provide great limited liability protection. When you start those LLCs, the government assigns the LLC its own EIN number and state ID number in whatever state you're incorporating in. And so as you, as you probably know, everything that you own personally is registered to your social security number, which is a very unique identification number and it's attached to you personally. And so in theory, you would think that if an LLC was assigned its own identification number and a property title was owned by an LLC name and the EIN number, that technically you don't personally own that property. Now, I don't want people to start throwing tomatoes at the screen just yet because I do know that LLCs are still very much connected to you personally. They're also known as pass-through entities, uh, meaning that if you're a single-member LLC, you still file that form on your individual tax return, uh, not as a separate tax filing in most cases, uh, unless it's a multi-member LLC of some sort. So is it easy for somebody to pierce that corporate veil? Absolutely. In the state of California, especially if, if somebody can file a, a charging order in a court of law uh, based on either illegal activity, malpractice, negligence, or straight up ignorance 
uh, you know, and they can prove that in a court of law, they could pierce that corporate veil, that LLC veil, and come after all of the assets inside of it. I, I was taught very early in my investment career, real estate-wise, small business-wise, by not only my father, but Bob Hall as well, both two, two of my mentors in life, uh, that you, know, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. Uh, and that, that phrase kind of goes hand in hand with what I'm trying to relay here. You don't want to put 15, 20 valuable assets under one LLC structure, because if somebody was able to pierce that corporate veil, they could come after all of the assets in the business. Uh, so what is the cost of all of that? Because you figure, well, if I have 15 properties, 15 LLCs, well, in California and New York and states that have high filing fees, it could be pretty darn expensive. But at that, expensive, but at that point, it's an opportunity cost. And it is a full write-off. Anything that you pay in state filing fees or legal and professional fees, incorporating fees, those are great dollar-for-dollar dollar tax deductions for the business. Uh, do you always need all of your properties in one LLC or separated into other LLCs? It's a case-by-case -case situation, I, I would have to say. Uh, one main reason, just as a side note, one main reason why people don't group 10, 15 properties into an LLC here in the state of California is, is more on the tax side of things because California, once again, is a very unique state, highest tax state in the US, and LLCs pay tax or pay their filing fee, not tax, but pay their filing fee to the state of California based on their gross income, not their net profit. So if you put 15, 20 properties under an LLC, you have one limited liability company protecting all 15 properties. So, you know, you, you, they're all subject to potential litigation if they are able to pierce the corporate veil. But more importantly, on the tax side, you might, when you add up all of your gross rents for each of the properties, let's say it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not only do you have to pay that minimum $800 parking ticket right out the gate, that's the minimum filing fee for LLCs in the state of California, but you may also be subject to the gross receipts tax based on your gross revenue. So it may actually end up in some cases being cheaper to file as separate LLCs. Just as a side note, it doesn't always work out that way, but it could, it could possibly work out that way. You know, one way I explain the legal side to people, not being an attorney, but my father was as well. He used to tell me that anybody can sue anybody for anything. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're going to win, but they can sue you. Yep. And today, increasingly, judges are inclined to vote or decide things more based on how they feel than strictly the law. Mm -hmm. And having an LCM's property might be belts and suspenders, but some people need belts and suspenders. We have airbags and seatbelts as well. So it depends on your case. I think your best advice, like you said, is talk to your attorney about what you need rather than I would never go to a seminar person telling me I need an LLC. Oh, and by the way, I sell them cheap right here. Click here for a discount on today's seminar. That's probably, you're going to be encouraged to buy more of anything than you really need, right? Right. And one, one other side note, Bill, just, just before I forget, an LLC, because of, of that whole uh, percentage ownership uh, situation that I mentioned earlier, because there are no shares issued out of the LLC, the LLC can actually uh, take in property, it can, get, it can distribute property, it can distribute capital, receive capital, free from having any significant tax implications across the board because it is very much a pass-through entity. Uh, unlike the S corporation or even the C corporation, when you put large assets, like let's say a $500,000 investment property into a corporation, uh, and let's say five, 10 years down the line, you'd rather take that property back to your personal name for a number of reasons, you know, maybe to put a child on title and not to group everything under the corporation. Well, if 10 years ago you bought that property for 500 grand and now and put it into the S corporation, you've essentially traded a $500,000 property for $500,000 in shares of a corporation. Well, five, 10 years down the line, if that $500,000 property fair market value now in the present time is a million bucks and you distribute that property back to yourself, even though you didn't sell the property, the federal government views that as a $500,000 capital gain because you didn't sell the property, but you distributed shares at a million dollar fair market value with a basis of $500,000. So rental properties on, on the tax side of things as well should really only ever be put under limited liability companies. Very, very few situations where a property would be best under a C corporation uh, or some type of entity. But I'd say 99% of the time, at least from the tax side of things, uh, properties should always be put into LLCs and not the latter. Got it. Um, you know, the next question, I'm a little embarrassed. Chuck Simmons asked and somebody else asked as well. Uh, but I didn't ask this when I, uh, you know, uh, became a client of your firm. I just, uh, I think she knew the right answer and we went ahead with it. Um, but shame on me if I didn't even know he's asking. 
what's the difference for me, let's say, as a real estate investor slash professional? I have a, I have a business I make income on, and I make some money you know, flipping properties and buying investing properties. What's the difference for me as an investor for a C-corp versus an S-corp? Why is one more likely or more common than the other one? Sure. The, the C corporation, for instance, is normally used for larger business operations. Uh, you know, the Ebays, the Starbucks, the Amazons of the world, uh, in most cases, they're all set up as C corps. They might have subsidiary companies that are S corps. Uh, but once you reach over 10 million in gross revenue uh, and over 100 shareholders of the business, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, in fact, I believe that at that level of business, you're required to file as a C corporation. But Obviously, tiered structuring comes into play where you can have subsidiaries and different LLCs owning different assets and whatnot. But a C corporation in the tax industry is known as a double taxed entity, meaning that it does not pass through income to the individual owners or shareholders. So whatever you leave as profit in a C corporation pays tax at the C corporation rate, which uh, pre-Trump administration uh, was upwards of 35 plus percent uh, for the corporation. Under the Trump administration, they dropped the 35% tax rate down to 21%, uh, which was giving corporate America a lot more benefit, obviously tax-wise. Uh, and now Biden's administration is talking about repealing a lot of that and bumping it back up to the old rates. But, but that's just the tax rate for the income in the corporation. And then you're required actually under internal revenue code, if you are a majority shareholder of a corporation, to pay yourself what's considered to be a reasonable salary. So not only do you pay the corporate tax at the C-Corp level, but then you also pay tax on whatever you take out of the corporation. If you issue a W-2, you pay tax on the W-2 personally. If you just draw from the C-Corporation, that's a dividend payout. So you pay ta dividend tax on the individual return. That's the C-Corporation. So you have to consider a C-Corporation to be a completely separate business entity that doesn't connect with you very much personally unless you pay yourself a payroll or pay yourself a dividend. Unlike the S corporation, which is very much a pass-through entity, it's still kind of like the LLC where it's connected to you individually in, in a couple ways. Uh, sure, you still have to pay yourself a reasonable salary out of the profit of, a, of an S corporation, which can be as low as 40% of your net profit. And that W-2 is reported on your personal return. But then you have this leftover company profit. And let's say that your, your overall profit was 100 grand. You pay yourself a $40,000 salary. You write $40,000 off because you get to deduct your, your payroll. So now you've got 60 grand in leftover profit under the S Corp. The S Corporation doesn't actually ever pay federal income tax. That 60 grand of profit passes through to your individual tax return and you settle up with Uncle Sam and whatever state you file in on the individual return. But what you've achieved in this separation of income where you have the W-2 and this form called a K-1 is you've separated 100 grand into payroll taxable income, which is your W-2, subject to federal, state, and social security, Medicare tax. And then whatever's left over under the S-Corp is only subject to federal and state income tax. So on 60 grand in this scenario, you've completely avoided, not evaded, tax evasion is illegal, tax avoidance is not. And so on 60 grand, you've properly avoided paying 15.3% of social security and Medicare tax. So for a self-employed individual, the S-Corporation is kind of the unicorn of the tax industry. It gives you the benefits of both worlds, limited liability protection, as well as the, the, all the benefits that corporate America has, has to offer. So $60,000 of legal tax avoidance at 50% is like $9,000 a year. That pays for the filing fees, the accountant fees, and probably a little vacation for your wife or something as well. Yeah. Yep. Good call, Bill. Good. Yeah, that, that, that was good. I like, I like how you, yeah, that's a good calculation. It's about $9,200 or something. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, well, I, I, when I heard that number, I, I was watching one of your videos, I was like, oh my gosh, that's real money. Like, I work hard to make $9,000. That's money that I've already earned that I just don't have to write a check for, but I can keep. Are you kidding me? Of course it makes sense. So yep. uh, I got on top of that right away. Um, okay, great. Another question that I'm sure you've done hour-long talks on and then a half-hour Q&A afterwards, and we'll give you about three or four minutes for some highlights, is what changed in 2020 in particular, uh, about my ability to write off home office expenses. You know, I used to work in an office environment, and now I'm at home, and uh, I'm me personally, but uh, now I'd buy a computer, and I had to get some space in the house, and, and uh, had to buy some other equipment, maybe a printer or some upgrade my network. So what changed, if anything, in 2020? And then maybe just a, a high-level uh, uh, points to pay attention to on home office in particular. 
Sure, sure. Well, aside from a lot changing in 2020 for all of us, our, our lives were, were kind of flipped upside down. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the CARES Act, uh, you know, the, the initial CARES Act was rolling out and there was a lot of misinformation around that. And then PPP loans, EIDL loans. So there, was a, there were a lot of changes. But uh, one of the biggest changes was uh, the fact just in personal, personal lives of, of taxpayers, people were forced to work from home. Uh, uh, third week of March, we, we shut down our office for in-person appointments and we all moved to our in-home offices. And, you know, it's, it's a gift and a curse, I guess. You know, I love being at home and being closer to healthy food upstairs and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the in-home office deduction is probably going to be one of the, uh, you know, larger deductions for a lot of taxpayers here in the U.S., or across all 50 states, except for maybe, you know, the Floridian state, uh, you know, that, that didn't really shut down for too long. Uh, but, you know, I've been getting this question a lot. Hey, what, what is going to happen with the audit risk of an in-home office? Uh, how is that all being handled? And I'll give you my professional and I'll also give you my personal opinion. And if you want to take that or not, that, that's fine. Uh, professionally speaking, you know, I think that after 17 years of doing what, what I do in you know, tax preparation and education, uh, I think that, that professionally speaking, I think the in-home office deduction will always have a slightly higher risk for audit than other deductions. And not because it's not a legitimate write-off, but mainly because people aren't reasonable with the allocation they use on their tax return for office space. Uh, you know, just because you have a guest bedroom that has a bed and a TV and a dresser and maybe your elliptical machine, and then you have this tiny desk in the corner, doesn't mean that you can write off the full guest bedroom as an office space, right? I mean, that's what people tend to try and do. But at the end of the day, it's really just the space inside of the room that is office space. And then you can include the square footage of the nearest restroom to your office space. Uh, but then there were some people during the 2020 pandemic that literally cleared out the guest bedroom or turned their den into a full-blown working office space. Uh, so I think that coming out of 2020, you're going to see a lot more people writing off the in-home office and continuing on into 2021 and 2022, I think, which personally speaking, I think it will have a lower risk for audit. In-home offices have been one of the highest ticket audit items on, a, on an individual yeah. return for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they will still have a slightly higher risk for audit coming out of 2020. Personally speaking, I do not think that the government will be focusing a lot of their time on the in-home office write-offs. But they may actually adjust their, their approach for the audit on the in-home office, meaning that they may only go after people trying to write off 40% of their home rather than people writing off 30% of their home. But at the end of the day, it's all speculation at the moment. We have no case study on any of this, meaning that no one's been audited for 2020 because the government's still about 3 million documents behind in processing. They're still trying to catch up with 2018, 2019 audits and processing of returns. So we're going to have to wait and see in 2022 when the 2020 uh, audits start to roll out or questions about in-home offices start to roll out. But I did want to mention one more thing. It is actually one of the only deductions still nowadays where the government can physically come to your home to verify the deduction, meaning that they'll come into your home and they'll, they'll measure your square footage for office space. Uh, so just be reasonable with the allocation, especially if you're a sole proprietor or a single member LLC because you file this 8829 in-home office form. Whereas if you're a corporation like yourself, Bill, if you're an S corporation, you actually won't file that 8829 form. You'll actually set up a, an agreement with your corporation to pay you rent out of the corporation. And now you file a Schedule E on your individual tax return, which is a rental property. So Schedule E's have less than like a one to 2% chance for audit. Whereas the in-home office form, the in-office expense form or in-home office expense form 8829 has close to a 70 to 75% chance for being pulled for audit. So it does change depending on if you're full-blown incorporated as an S corp or a C corporation versus just a standard LLC or sole proprietorship. You know, I think this is a big uh, area that's undeveloped for real estate agents because number one, increasingly we don't need offices. Uh, you know, most realtors associate with a, a firm that has office. Uh, but, but most of us work mostly out of our home. And in my case, I have a three bedroom house with one bedroom. Now that our daughter's moved out, it's fully my office for video and, and phone call and desks. There's nothing there that's not, that's not my business. And a back room, a den, that it's storage and equipment and, and uh, books and, and resources for my business. And I was scared to death when I calculated my taxes. I looked at that number. I said, I can't write that off. That the IRS is combusting in here. And I don't know, but the truth is if they did, it's all legitimate. And I think that uh, it's an area where real estate agents need to be more proactive and say, okay, let's, let's have a professional office at home. Let's get a separate Wi-Fi 
for my business as opposed to using the home Wi-Fi and write, trying to write the whole thing off. Let's make it more professional so we can do our jobs better as well as get the full tax benefit of it. So I don't know how that's going to work out, but that's my little two cents on it. Absolutely. I think a lot of people don't write it off out of fear, probably because of their accountant putting fear in, in their minds about being audited. Uh, I have never, and our firm has never been the type of firm that, that tells you not to take a deduction. That is an ordinary, necessary, and legitimate write-off to, to, to not take a deduction. That is actually a built-in part of the internal revenue code. Don't ever be afraid of taking that legitimate write-off. Just be reasonable with the allocation and know, know exactly what your rights are for, for what you can write off. So the next question we have, I'm not sure who asked it, but it's in the chat box, is uh, I'm a nine to five worker. I have a, I have a day job. I get paid a salary, 60,000 a year, 150 a year, whatever it is. And I pay my you know uh, taxes on that. I pay my payroll taxes. But I also invest in property. How much of my um, income from my W-2 wages can or can any be offset by buying rental property? Oftentimes, we buy rental property where it may be cash flow is positive, but part of the tax benefit is the depreciation, which is a paper loss in a sense, kind of, long discussion. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, can I write off some of my, or, or uh, what was it, not, not evade, but avoid paying uh, taxes on my uh, nine to five income, or am I being unrealistic by, by looking at those losses and maybe missing that those paper losses are really, should be reserves or long-term expenses. Sure. So, so there's never really a time where you lose the loss. Uh, that that's a general misconception in in most fields, especially if if you're not a licensed tax advisor studying a lot a lot of the the code that we study each year. Uh, but you never really lose the loss. Some people get to use it. Some people don't. And it's based on a phase-out threshold, uh, meaning that in your situation in this, in this question, you're making 50, 60 grand in W two income. Because your AGI, your adjusted gross income, the assumption of mine is that your AGI with all income sources is under $150,000. Uh, and so there, there's a phase out from about 100 grand in AGI, adjusted gross income to 150 grand, where you start to phase out from being allowed the immediate loss deductible benefit from real estate uh, passive, you know, active losses. Uh, meaning that at 60 grand, if your property after depreciation, mortgage interest, insurance, repairs, so on and so forth, let's say your property is showing a 10 grand loss on 60 grand of W-2 income being well below the phase out threshold, you'd actually be allowed that dollar for dollar $10,000 adjustment. So you wouldn't be paying tax on 60 grand, you'd be hypothetically paying tax on 50 grand. Um, if you're making 175,000 AGI, whether you're married, filing joint, single, head of household, married, filing separate, at 175 grand, you're well above the 150 threshold. And, and so you have fully phased out from being allowed the, the immediate loss benefit, but you don't lose it. You carry it forward. It's called an unallowed passive loss carry forward. And so what the wealthy do in a lot of cases, they take their higher earned income, they qualify for great financing deals because they're qualified borrowers. They close on as many properties as possible, You know, write off all of the expenses to the extent of rental income collected. So if I'm collecting 30 grand in rent, I can write off 30 grand in expenses, but the 10 or 15 grand loss that I'm actually showing, that is not tax deductible if my income is above 150,000. And so it carries forward to future years until one of three things happens. One, my AGI drops below 150,000 and it starts to uh, you know, release some of those suspended losses. So below 150. Number two, you dispose of the property. So when you dispose of a property, all of your unallowed passive losses that are attached to the property, they become fully tax deductible in the year of sale, offsetting any potential gain and recapture depreciation tax. Or number three, you quit your full-time job and you become a real estate professional. Because if you claim yourself as a real estate professional or 51, better yet, 51% or more of your personal income is real estate related income, you can claim active participation on your return and or real estate professional status. And you could make five, six, $700,000 in income and not be phased out from being allowed the real estate losses. So real estate professionals, that election right there allows you to forego a lot of those limitations on the deductible losses through real estate investments. Um, well, thank you. Now, that, um, I mean, uh, obviously, and I know there's a lot more to that, but thank you for summarizing it at a high level, and which, which gives people of modest means an immediate incentive, but everybody should realize they have those uh, benefits of property uh, over the long run. Um, selling my personal residence, 
uh, obviously there's deferment options, but if I don't have those for whatever reason, um, how much, if any, is exempt from uh, income tax? I guess there's a question in California and there's a question federalized. So when I sell my house at a profit of more than I paid for it, what, what's, what are, what is uh, going to get taxed? And then what are some strategies to avoid that? Sure. So, so on the on the income tax side of things, capital gain tax on the sale of a primary residence really only ever kicks in uh, on a gain married filing joint on a gain that's over five hundred thousand dollars, or single, or head of household, or married filing separate, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So there is this thing called the Section One Twenty One exclusion, part of the Internal Revenue Code, that states that as long as you've lived in that house and it's been your primary residence for two out of the past five years. You can sell that home and exclude anywhere from a $250,000 gain, once again, if you're single, or double that if you're married filing joint, $500,000, uh, exclude it completely from your taxable income. Now, if you bought the home 30, 40 years ago, you're probably looking at a much greater gain than 500 grand. And so you have to make sure that you are being very, uh, I'm going to say accurate, but, but being you know, conservatively aggressive uh, when you add up all of the improvements to the home that you've made to the home over the past 30 years. Because if you bought that home for 100 grand, now you're selling it for $1.5 million. Uh, you know, in Burbank, California, uh, you know, obviously you get $500,000 excluded from that. But if you never made any improvements over the past 30 years, you're still having to report 900 grand minus your closing costs and whatnot. But you're still having to report a pretty significant capital gain. But what you can do to reduce that capital gain is take your $100,000 original purchase price add in all of the improvements you've made to the home over the past 30 years, let's call it 500 grand in improvements, remodeling kitchens, foundation repair, new roof, solar improvements, so on and so forth. So let's say you add 500 grand to your basis, now you're at 600,000, and let's say it sells for 1.5 million minus your closing costs, so let's call it 100 grand. 1.4 million minus 500,000 gives you 900,000 minus 600,000, right, which is your basis. Now you're only paying capital gain tax on 300,000, which is a heck of a lot less than capital gain tax on 900,000 to a million dollars. So uh, you can add improvements to your basis and also subtract closing costs uh, to offset that gain. And then you get that 500,000, 250 or $500,000 exclusion. And again, use the, the term uh, as capital gain. Um, so that's also subject to change now, right? That was lower to 20% in 2018 and 19. And they're discussing raising it to 28. Would you advise clients about about that or, or is it really just hey you're making the money and you're going to pay whatever taxes is uh decided upon how does that so, work so so because biden's administration has has and I'll, I'll say dragged their feet on this because they should have released this tax code months and months ago if not dialed in something very very uh you know set in stone earlier this year to allow for a lot more planning uh what i've been reading as part of his green book which is the kind of preliminary release of their internal revenue code changes uh, is that there will be some people who will not be impacted by the changes to the capital gain rate, meaning that if your income is low enough, you'll still be subject to the lower, lower capital gain rates, which could be as low as 0%. That's the craziest thing under the current tax code. If you file under the 10% income bracket on the federal side, your long-term capital gain rate is zero at the moment. So they haven't finalized this tax code just yet. And what Biden's administration is really focusing on is hitting people in the higher income brackets with higher income tax, right? right. So, so, you know, speculation right now really doesn't do anyone any good. You know, obviously that, that just creates more fear in the market. But yes, you're absolutely right. Back in 2000, uh, actually, I think it was 2012 uh, when the Obamacare bill uh, was first released, uh, they introduced something called the net investment tax, which is 3.8%. Uh, in Medicare tax that you pay on investment income if your AGI is above 250 grand. And then if your income is above $400,000, I believe that threshold has changed a little bit. If your income is above 400,000, you're subject to a 20% long-term capital gain rate. Current, current, currently, that's the current tax code. Uh, but if you're below that, it's 15% long-term and then state, obviously on the California side, 9.3%. So in some cases, your long-term capital gain rate, if you're a high income earner can be 33.1% maybe even more depending on if there's any recapture depreciation on the sale of an investment property of some sort. Uh, so yes, there will be changes on the horizon with capital gains. What I truly believe will happen is that you'll have to be a high, high income earner uh, to be subject to some of these new rules. And they will come out with a more definitive grandfathering law where it says that if you've owned the property prior to 1991 or whatever that year is going to be, that you won't be subject to a lot of that. Because let's face it, 
primary residencies, maybe not in California, maybe not in New York, and maybe not in some other wealthy states, primary residencies are a lot of, a lot of taxpayers' only source of retirement. And so to, to increase that capital gain rate and to get rid of certain benefits for individuals living in, in other parts of the U.S. where the average state income or average or median income is only 30 or 40 grand in some places, to get rid of that benefit, it would really, really be hurting a lot of United States taxpayers. So we're going to have to wait and see that intricate detail of the new tax bill before we really start to, to jump into the advising side of that. I'm going to say for the record, I'm hoping to be one of those wealthy people that the Biden administration is targeting. I don't want to avoid the income. Me too. Yeah. I want to strategize my way around to minimize that. But just for the, and hope other people on the call, well, just real quick, who in the, on this call would like to be somebody who makes so much income you're being targeted by the government for more taxes? I'm just quick show of hands. Anybody besides me? Okay. Or in the chat box, put yes. If you're watching on the live stream, put yes as well. In fact, if you're watching the live stream, feel free to YouTube and Facebook. I see some people watching live. We've just got a question in from, um, let me yeah, real fast, from, I keep hitting the button, there it is, uh, uh, Joanne, Joanna Ling, and she said, she made a point, because you're talking about offsetting your gains with uh, expenses, she made the point, it's important to keep all those receipts for all those years. You, you buy a house and live there for, and raise a family for 20, 30 years, those receipts from the remodel 10, 15 years ago, they're like worth money to you, right? They're worth 25 cents on the dollar or some, some number of the dollar if, if, you're, if you have a big tax liability perhaps, correct? And how do sure. customers manage that? Well, yeah, and I, I just wanted to mention that, you know, that in a, in a perfect world, we'd all keep uh, better records of, of improvements to homes and whatnot. Uh, yeah. You know, in, in an audit scenario, it, it really comes down to what the agent is after in an audit. Um, you know, if the agent is a real stickler about obviously documenting receipts dating back 30 plus years, uh, that agent really isn't understanding the internal revenue code and the statute of limitations on a lot of things. So uh, in, in certain cases, when the agent is not allowing the adjustment of improvements because you don't have receipts or, or improvement cost evidence of that, um, you know, there, there are some, some creative ways that we can work with the federal government to get fair market value appraisals of improvements that were done in certain years to where a, a, an adjustment can be made under audit. Um, you know, the IRS isn't just going to say, well, you bought this home 40 years ago for 100 grand, uh, you know, and now that the home is beautiful in, in, a, in a really nice part of the US, and clearly it's selling for 2 million bucks now, it's got a brand new kitchen, new driveway, all of this stuff, and it looks nothing like the house that, you, you know, that you originally purchased. Obviously, they're not going to say, well, you got you to stick with that $100,000 basis. So what it comes down to in that scenario is proper representation. If you go in and try to argue, argue yourself, you're probably not going to like the results. And at that point, you, you hire a firm like ours on retainer uh, to go and, and argue your point and figure out what the agent is really, really after. Um, I, I have yet in 17 years to meet an agent that wasn't, that wasn't going to allow any adjustment to the bottom line over 30, 40 years of investment. In fact, just as a side note, and once again, I have yet in 17 years of doing what I do, I, I've yet to see a section 121 audit. Uh, meaning that it, when you sell the primary residence, the government knows that it's a, a major part of people's retirement uh, you know, in, in, the, in the long term. So uh, I have yet to see an audit on a Section 121 exclusion. That, that's just me personally. I'm sure there have been, uh, maybe oh. even with our firm or other, other professionals, but I, I haven't seen one. I appreciate your mentioning uh, the uh, representation. My first experience when I was new in sales you know, back in the late 80s, uh, we had an enrolled agent do our taxes. He was referred by a good attorney friend of mine. And we'd use him for two or three years. And one year we got an audit request for a certain piece of, of uh, the filing. And he said, well, I don't help you with that. You're on your own. Mm. And I said, well, how does that work? You don't prepare the documents. We gave you the receipts. I don't understand all this stuff. He said, well, no, I'm just the tax preparer. I don't do that. Mm. And I think not to say he should or shouldn't. That's a business decision that I can respect. But as a consumer of that service, I now know the difference between a firm like yours and an enrolled agent who's just going to do a tax prep and uh, you know, want that representation in case something comes up. Yep. Yeah, we have our own in-house audit division. So uh, headed by Phil Duncan, who is incredible at what he does. We have great rapport with the IRS. We, we know agents uh, in most cases in Glendale on a first name basis, just because we bounce ideas off of them. You know, sometimes there will be a creative position that we want to take uh, and we'll call those agents up and ask them what they think of it. And that gives us a really good base. That's, that's even better than case study because you're getting it straight from the mouth of an auditor. 
you know, and that's that's the kind of proactive approach that we take, especially to protect our clients under audit. Well, that's the power of a practitioner versus a professor, right? I know for me personally, I host this uh, Zoom call as a probate expert. I work in probate every day with investors, with uh, estates attorneys selling and buying on both sides. And I can give advice because I both represent buyers and I represent sellers. That makes me better at the job. In your case, representing the client helps you understand what the government's looking for. And obviously it makes sense to give better advice so that clients don't get in trouble. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and just to go back a little bit, uh, Daniel pointed out that he has a strong correlation between the quality of his life and his tax burden. So yes, Daniel, we're all working. I got a million yeses, we're all working to increase our potential tax burden. And then we're gonna use uh, Tony and his firm to help us uh, legally uh, avoid taxes, but never, God forbid, evade taxes. Yes. Um, yeah. Good. Um, okay, so I have another question that not related to you is, how can we watch recording at a later time uh, from Vita? I'll say, Vita, anybody who subscribed to Eventbrite, uh, their service is actually down today, but generally we send an uh, email out with a link to the YouTube. Uh, but this is all being streamed live on our YouTube channel. And you can see that in the uh, chat box. But if you just search in YouTube, Bill Gross Probate, you'll see all the uh, videos that I do. And I do a weekly call. There's a playlist of Probate Weekly, another one on real estate investment Zooms. Um, okay, I'm looking for any other questions we missed. I guess I know you go on and have a lot to offer besides what we covered today. I appreciate you letting me kind of pick the highlights of the people in our group, but I think we've really covered, is there anything before we go? First, I would, I would, I'll thank you when we're done, but is there anything that you think I should have covered? We're talking to uh, investors and real estate agents. Is there anything that you would think that we should have covered or anything you would encourage them to do to protect themselves and help them uh, pay the minimum taxes while they increase their wealth? Yes, absolutely. Uh, just one one kind of final point and that, that kind of wraps up everything that we've talked about. Uh, you know, one of the general misconceptions uh, on the taxpayer side is that tax season is the most busy time of the year for a tax advisor. Uh, and for, for some kind of middle of the road tax advisors, I could very much be, you know see that as January 15th through April 15th being their time that is just super hectic. And yes, tax season for the most part is very, very hectic. But uh, you know, what really kind of sets us aside from other preparation firms is that tax season is always going to be busy. We, we've known that since day one of entering into this, this career and, and this industry. Uh, but what I've realized over the past 17 years of doing this is that the fourth quarter of the calendar year actually should be much busier than tax season is. And why is that? Well, that's because if you are, are truly wanting to grow and build wealth, you have to put a plan in place. So year-end planning is by far the most important meeting you should have with your tax advisor uh, compared to the tax preparation appointment. Because if you sit with your tax advisor in October, November, December, and have all of your year-to-date information uh, readily available in, in pay stubs or, or profit and loss statements and things that will help your tax advisor kind of close out the end of your year, that is when we can send you out of our offices back into the jungle, I call it, call it the jungle these days, back out into the jungle to maybe uh, upgrade computer equipment, buy a new vehicle, um, you know, put solar on a product, Wh whatever those, those strategies are going to be during our year-end planning, that helps us further reduce tax, but more importantly, it helps us retain wealth uh, before the end of the year. And by tax filing time in January, February, March, or April, we already know what your tax return is going to look like because we did planning ahead. That, that, that phrase, right? That phrase that everybody knows, failing to plan is ultimately planning to fail. So a big part of what we do at Robert Hall is planning. Uh, and the tax appointment should really just be kind of a breeze for the taxpayer because we already know what the bottom line is going to look like unless you have this big deal closing December 30th, right? You know, there's really very few things that anybody can do at that point because it's right at the tail end of the year. But you give us enough time before the end of the year to implement some really creative and unique strategies, we can help retain wealth for our clients uh, like, like no, no other. Uh, and that's, that's really been a focus of mine and been a focus of our firms uh, over the past 50 years is the planning side of things. You know, I have to say when I did my uh, initial intake with your firm, I was ashamed how I never really did that. And I'm always busy and you know, maybe in the past had CPAs say, hey, we should get together. But when she laid out to me what the possibilities were that we could change this year, given what's going on, and she said that that was really part of your firm's kind of practice, I was just ashamed I had never really taken a professional approach. I plan my business, I plan 
you know, my lead generation. I planned so many things and I've never really planned the tax strategies and the, and the, and the, the, the strategy to use for, for picking the wealth and putting it in the right format. And so I appreciate you guys do that. So one last question I like to ask, I know that, you know, pre-COVID, you guys were regularly doing in-person uh, seminars and, and meetings, and you did like a, a let's say convention or some sort of a, like a meeting group of, of vendors and such. How would somebody who's interested in learning more about you or your firm find out more or get engaged with you to see if it's a good fit for them for their tax planning or their, their purpose? What would they do? Sure. The best thing to do is just reach out either directly to our firm uh, or check out our website. We have an events tab that tells, uh, you know, our, our clients and potential clients about upcoming events, uh, roberthalltaxes.com. Or if you're interested in a free consultation or to know about up upcoming events, uh, you can email me at Tony Watson. So my full name, Tony Watson at roberthalltaxes.com. Uh, and that email is kind of viewed not only by me, but Enzo Ricciardi, who's our new client intake uh, uh, person at the office, as well as Mike Delisio and Ronnie Marutian. And so that email is checked, uh, you know, every, every other minute or so uh, to make sure that we connect you either with the right referral or set you up with a free consultation, or if it's just simply, hey, when's your next uh, free educational seminar, we can, we can obviously put you on our e-blast list. You know, we're not trying to we're not trying to blast you with, with information, but we're trying to let you know about these upcoming events that we have going on. And they're all free. All of our education is free at our firm. So Tony Watson at roberthalltaxes.com. And the reason I'm doing this call today, we normally talk just about probate specifically. I think this relates to us as, as, as professionals, whether you're an investor or a wholesaler or a real estate agent like I am or an attorney or an executor for an estate. I did this. I heard the webinar. I heard them say that. I sent the email. I got contact by Enzo. I set up the no-cost consultation. I was blown away with the, with just quickly the things they point out that I could do that would change my taxes dramatically uh, in the time I spent uh, and, and the execution. The, the fees were reasonable. I got the uh, S-Corp set up. I got the EIN. I, I didn't I needed to get the, the checkout set up. It was, it was really easy. So I want to share this with you guys. I, for those of you who are looking more about, hey, I have a probate and a problem, Feel free to text me, email me anytime, call me. I'm glad to help you that. But I really wanted today to be an opportunity for you to say, hey, are you really playing the game to win by planning to put the money you're making to the best use possible for you and your family in the future? And I think uh, uh, Tony and his team represent a great asset. So hopefully we made that available for you today. So uh, again, Tony, thank you so much. And to you, uh, Mike, who set this up and, and Enzo and your whole team, thank you so much for making this available. Uh, for your time and sharing like you did and letting us uh, share the message of importance of tax planning strategies and so on. Really appreciate your time with us today. Not a problem, Bill. Thanks again for having me. And then again, for everybody else, this is probateweekly.com. If you want to sign up and register, we do it every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. We stream it live on uh, Facebook and, and YouTube and then record it on YouTube as well as you can watch the past episodes there. I'm Bill Gross, Bill at the LA Probate expert.com. You can call me, text me, email me anytime. Really appreciate all your guys' support today. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic week. And uh, look more for more information from the Grant Cardone 10X real estate uh, industry event I'm at today. Thank you so much, everybody.